Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 173 of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone out there who wants to try to find me on Facebook or Instagram, it's at Justin Bizarro. On both Instagram and Facebook, you can also find us at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. Welcome back, guys. I have Paul and Joe from Eagles Catch from Iowa. How are you guys doing? I think we left you guys at... We were just starting to talk about uh, Buckeye Fish and how you guys came together on Paul's farm um, and started Barramundi, I believe, was the the fish. So let's start there and let's talk about how you guys came together. What were the first steps of moving into this turkey shed or whatever, a sheep shed or <laughs> building? Yeah, so, so when I first started uh, looking into the opportunity of raising fish, um, the, the acreage that I live on had a, a turkey barn that was used for range turkeys uh, back in the, the 70s and 80s. And I use it for uh, raising my sheep in. Um, and I thought this would be a great opportunity for my kids to have an opportunity to, to come back um, to the farm as an opportunity to uh, raise livestock. Now, I don't have a thousand acres of row crop that my kids can come back to and, and earn a living with. Uh, we do have livestock, cattle and sheep, um, and a few pigs, but there was nothing that was going to be sustainable for, for multiple families to, to live off of. It's, it's definitely a hobby. Um, so I was looking for an avenue for my kids, if interested in coming back to agriculture, that they would have an opportunity to do so. You know, and then you know, long story short, I was um, told to, to talk to Joe and, and be able to uh, pick his brain on what he was doing on the Bear Monday side of things and, and what he was doing as starting a fish farm uh, from scratch. So that's kind of where I, I came into to talking to Joe. Um, you know, like I said, that was probably my best sales job I've yeah. ever done is actually getting into um, Buckeye Fish Company and um you know talking with uh, joe and the plagues and and allowing them uh for me to come in uh to that that company and then uh, we brought another family farm farmer in to be able to to double the size of it and uh, before we even started so did you actually build it in the range turkey shed yeah, no. Or a barn? No, that that would have been a, a, a catastrophic idea to do. So yeah. Joe uh, had the opportunity and ideas and, and the vision uh, on on where to build it, how to build it, and you know go from, from ground up, more or less. So let's talk about that then. So <clears throat> you've now all come together. You have the group. You know, all of you are entrepreneurs in your own right. And now you've got to get the group to come together and basically you're gonna almost greenfield a project is, is what we're saying here. So let's talk about how you go about that. How do you figure out where to start the size of it? I mean, <clears throat> I don't even know. Yeah, so, so essentially when Paul sat down with us, uh, myself and the, and the Plaguey family, which is, uh, they're from the Clear Lake area, Clear Lake, Iowa, and uh, they're a big farm family. And what our intention was, is there was a, a gentleman that we knew that had an, like an off-the-shelf aquaculture system. And so he was going to sell us the system. He's going to come in and show us how to how to build it. You know, he had the, the price point. He supplies everything. Dream we, come true, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all we had to do was the building, and then we were going to work with this, with this other farm. 
And, uh, and so when Paul came in and, you know, he, he really wanted to be a part of the project. I think the words you used was, or the words that we use is like, look, there's going to be some bumps and scrapes along the way. And what Paul told me is I want to be a part of the bumps and scrapes. And I want to learn, you know, when you're in those early times, you know, you're taking arrows and you're making mistakes and learning lessons. He wants to be a part of that. And, uh, and so from our perspective, we've got this 12 tank system. And so there's, there's baseline overhead that you have to ha acquire to be, to build this system, like a well, a forklift, you know, these kinds of things. In doubling the size of the project, we were spreading that overhead over more tanks. So it's like, well, okay, well, if we got to hire, you know, Joe and we got to hire an, you know, one other person, it doesn't matter if we're running 12 tanks or 24 tanks and we only got to buy one forklift and those kinds of things. It's like, well, this makes sense. You know, let's double the size of the project. We can spread the overhead, potentially a faster payback period and those kinds of things. So it worked really well. My brother was an engineer at the time for a company in Iowa and we went to work on the building itself, trying to contain moisture and all these other things. And uh, we worked with the general contractor to build the farm. We put it on a piece of property that had been my parents. Um, my grandpa actually bought this uh, property in 1947. And, uh, and so here we were gonna build a fish farm on it. And, uh, and so we built this long building and for whatever reason we got delayed and then we started and start construction until October. Now winter's moving in. We have the coldest November like on record for like the last 20 years. And it was just one nightmare after another. And I remember one night, Paul and I were blowing insulation because the construction crew wasn't working fast enough for us. Yeah. So we were like, all right, let's jump in there. And uh, New Year's Eve night, I remember Paul and I, we blew insulation until four in the morning <laughs> trying yeah. to get ahead of, you know, the other cold that was coming in. And uh, that was during that time, you know, we were working 100, 110 hour weeks trying to get this whole system put together. The guy did come to show us how to put the tanks together. We got 24 tanks. He showed us on one. His con you know, he said he was gonna help out with at least six to eight, but he showed us on one. He's like, I'm getting out of here. It's way too cold. He lives in Florida. He's like, I can't stay here. And it was it was so cold. And so we built out this system and, and, uh, and it was a great experience, a great uh, introduction into a fish production system. And since it was an off the shelf, you know, we didn't have to do the sort of creative design side of the technology and everything that goes into it. And which has, of course, been bigger and bigger part of what we're doing. And, uh, and that kind of led into a different arrangement with our, uh, the, the farmer, the other farmers that were in the area that kind of led to a point where we decided to exit the business. Okay. <clears throat> and so you've exited. Um, both of you. So I should probably give some context to that yeah. exit too. So um, when we were in the build process, they had, you know, we, we like these guys. We trust these guys. They're hardworking, honest Iowa dudes. And, uh, and so they decided that they were going to bring in an investor that uh, was, was from Texas. You know, they had all this money. They're going to bring in Trace Atkins to be their spokesman. They're going to do all these great and wonderful things. And, uh, and pretty quickly, you know, we, again, we liked and trusted these, these Iowa guys. So we're going to, we're going to play ball with these guys. And they wanted to take this and just blow this up to, you know, a crazy degree. And, uh, we had our first conversation with them 
and uh and we're like wow you know we really hit the jackpot here you know we had uh we were at the right place right time of the course whole, always the the whole bit <clears throat> and uh you know they're they're gonna bring in this financing we're gonna get like a thousand percent roi and you know all this other stuff and uh and so after about six months you know our kind of continued conversations with them and even though we liked the guys that had had uh they had gotten in business with from an investment standpoint we weren't quite comfortable with the other guys because we were looking at kind of the baseline financial assumptions that they were bringing to the table and we just said i don't think these are realistic and they're based off of their production assumption those kinds of things we started to get kind of uncomfortable and we also knew that there we hadn't gotten a production contract we hadn't gotten anything in writing with them there was a lot of resistance and so finally we at a, a meeting between all the families that were involved with the buckeye fish company we kind of just said it started as a joke it's like well maybe we should just sell it to them because we're not sure what we're going to get out of this we're not sure if we're going to they're even going to be able to supply us the fish and that kind of put us between a rock and a hard place so it started as a joke so why don't we just sell it to them and uh and then we're like oh wait maybe we should do that like that makes a lot of sense so we did end up offering it to them and and uh they took our first offer and it's like oh, should ask for more money but, yeah, no, um, yeah that's that one too you know <laughs> damn yeah. it but yeah. uh and so they then uh then that summer they they actually took over the farm and rented it for us from us for a while for about a year before they closed um they were uh you know they were working on their own financing and so after a year they closed and um history kind of proved that we were right about the financial assumptions and um it unfortunate it was really unfortunate for the community because they did end up going bankrupt um and uh and their former management had been sued for uh securities fraud you know because oh, wow. when we talked about the um when we talked about those financial assumptions that we didn't really believe in you know that kind of came down to the money that they ended up raising and uh and you know we were thankful that we were able to exit uh and unscathed and actually with a little bit of money in our pocket but we really believed in what we were doing and we really believed in the opportunity it's just we hadn't connected the dots absolutely in the way that the dots needed to be connected and so at that point kind of was the nexus for the start of eagles catch and using everything that we had learned from production technology to building structures to marketing and everything else that goes into a business and we said all right we've learned some lessons now let's take this and and go do what uh it, the, and connect the dots in our own way in a way that we think is really going to make a long-term opportunity for our community yeah and i think from an entrepreneur standpoint um the gut thing um we don't trust it i think i don't think people in general do or are trusted i think it's kind of schooled out of us a little bit um to make us conform a little bit just my just because that's what we have to do to fit into society and be successful it's the way things are we're an entrepreneur we have to do a lot of gut checking what is my gut saying yeah and sometimes you don't like what your gut's saying and it's and oftentimes when we make mistakes it's not when it's not that we didn't know it's really that we didn't trust our gut because in our lives as an entrepreneur just like we were conditioned as kids the arrows or the scars or, or with the battle wounds have conditioned us to have internal alert systems mm -hmm. 
at least in my experience, and the longer and more I stay attuned to what those are or my reactions are, if I'm nervous or all of a sudden I get anxiety, like I'm very in tune. It almost magnifies to a point I can't stand it if I'm in a, or starting to get near someone that's starting to make me uncomfortable. It'll literally drive me an anxiety out of the room. Like my body's like, dude, what are you doing here? Like it's, you need to fact check this. What is in it for you? What's in it for the business? What are the negative things? But it's the ability to make the decisions and then um, make them quickly mm -hmm. um, if you want to exit or a partnership goes bad. And the other thing, when people raise money, I think it's an interesting thing how they often attach that to the people with credibility, but then use that to do things in poor nature, um, especially people that are trying to raise money to benefit themselves um, versus the entrepreneur who we know you can raise money and yes, it helps. But if you're not in there installing 24 kits, because most likely the guy sold you eight, but he's really going to do one. I mean, every piece of equipment almost in our building was oh, a week of training. You know, we're lucky if we got 12 hours the first day, right. you know, lucky. And so, you know, that being said, that is part of being an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur like the farm to this other point you can buy a business. I, you can buy anything. But getting into farming in the first place, you had a background in it. I just, you know, and that is part of that tribal knowledge that gets pushed down from generation to generation. And I'll just be straight up, you know, in the generation that's coming, it's often like, okay, we're going to also teach you how to manage us in our generation. Well, here's the thing about that you've lost all the tribal knowledge that you got in the small communities that you don't get in the big cities or even at the universities anymore because the classes are too big and now we're behind screens. And so what is it that's happening without the interaction or the growth that really is beyond a classroom? You don't have home ec, you don't do electric anymore, you don't do plumbing. You, most humans can't even frickin' hit a, a nail into a board anymore. And so it's like, how do you get those skill sets for me it's like just to be like a, a renaissance man just like function like a modern human male that i feel like i need to be to be not because i'm egotistical but because i'm like oh i need to feel good like i should be able to take care of the necessity basic necessities to survive to protect myself and my family or take care of us financially okay mm -hmm. or be able to be get myself out of a crisis with my own hands you know, so that's the thing that I think we've sort of thrown out and the other generations don't realize and that we've entitled them to is, yeah, you're entitled to it. Eh, what does it matter? Tradition, culture, like we're sort of just throwing it to the wayside, flag, whatever, you know, I don't care. You know, I'm being extreme, but it's like, it's the same thing we talk about. So often we get into business relationships where people have conditioned the entitlement you know, what does it matter if I exaggerate this a little bit? It's not going to harm anyone, but really it does harm people. But they never got the tribal knowledge to know it was wrong in the first place or have the moral and ethics to make the decisions because it's no longer, yes, I stick up for the police officer. Or yes, I stick up for the teacher disciplining the kid and you need to learn a lesson. It's more like, oh, you did that to my kid. What's your problem? Okay, well, we just missed right. the function of the world completely on being successful outside of just whatever so it makes it hard when they get into the business environments or entrepreneur environments like ours and there's a higher standard by which you've got to operate 
So it makes partnerships hard. It makes doing business with vendors hard. It makes doing business with farmers hard sometimes. It, in our case, it just, it takes a certain type of human to be entrepreneurial and to know what you have to go through and what you've been through. And when the person doesn't display that I've been through the frickin' battle, you get nervous. It's like probably like World War II guys were feeling when the new troops came in from base camp and you're like, oh man, we've been here for like 10 weeks. What are you gonna do, man? Like you yeah. you have no idea what I've been through. How are you gonna protect me? Stay behind me. Let me show you how to do this. Mm -hmm. But if we don't allow that to happen and pass it on, I think um, we run into situations. But Absolutely. if you pay attention to your gut, the opportunity I think is that much greater. So I didn't wanna get off on a tangent but I really want to focus on a problem that entrepreneurs are having, which is how do you train someone as an entrepreneur who wants to train you on how to manage them? Well, management is not part of the entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Tough knocks are. And, and that's where I think a lot of the, the school age kids and college age kids, they just don't have those opportunities to learn yeah. or to fail, you know, in those settings until it's, you know, out in the real world, and and like you said, they've lost all that knowledge and all yeah. that opportunities of just trying something and and learning something new. That yeah. you know, I'm entitled to this no matter what. Yeah, and it's the thing. Your friends are probably off getting good jobs. You're going down to learn fish. You know, you know, my first job paid way more than I made by not working there. But I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work in an office. I'm going to go try this entrepreneurial thing with my dad and try to build a business and he, you know, that him and his partner started. And that's the direction I went. And I was counting food on carts, doing cost analysis, which anyone with a basic math education could do, but I had to start at the bottom to learn the business. And I had to be, no matter who my father was, I still had to be the lowest on the totem pole if I was going to learn and be willing to just, deal with all the stuff no one else wanted to do, whether it was dad entry or weighing every cup of volume of broccoli versus a volume of cauliflower. I was going to be the one to do it just because that's how I was going to learn. So when someone comes in, like you said, but go on. Yeah. I think one of the things that, uh, there's a, a gentleman that I've gotten to know over the last uh, handful of years. And uh, he always told me like, you know, you're just like me, except you had the schooling and I had this, the street, uh, experience, you know? And so like the whole, the, the book smarts versus the street smarts is something that, you know, we talk a lot about and you can study like crazy and, and you can work really hard and that can get you really far in, there's a certain level of street smarts to your point and what you did at starting at the lowest level that is so important and you can only get it through experience. Yeah. And you can only get that kind of street smarts from having bad situations and learning from them. And so, you know, in any case, any chance that I get, you know, I'm recommending to young entrepreneurs or people that, you know, they want to take over the world. They want to, you know, create the next best app that, you know, is going to leverage them to this, you know, crazy position and all this other stuff. And it's, um, they spend so much time planning, planning, planning. Yeah. And uh, one of my other friends, uh, one of my best friends, actually, he is, um, he's kind of one of those, and he does very well for himself. And the thing I keep telling him is, look, it doesn't matter what you do, 
just start doing. Yeah, just do something. And yeah. and do it, and you're gonna have those sort of uh, those trips and falls and mistakes and those kinds of things. That's gonna build up those sort of calluses. It's gonna build up those street smarts. And just in the process of doing things, you don't need to take over the world tomorrow. And the expectations on you are still are not as high as you think. Your expectations on yourself are way higher than what anybody else puts on you. And so if you can develop this process, if you can develop, you know, if you're able to do the book smarts and, and there's so much that you can get from that. But if you can also get the street smarts that comes from experience at a very early age, then there's so much more that you can accomplish, uh, especially if you, even if you put the two together. Yeah, because if we're gonna, we're talking about street wisdom, it's really the street credibility that gets you true relationships and people mm -hmm. see yeah. that you've gone through it. And it's that street wisdom that you've taken. Yes, there's an educational basis for sure. Um, but you're able then to identify financial problems because you've been there. You know the way the money works. You're, I'm living the frickin' life of the broccoli in my case. You're living the life of the fish. Like you're following what that fish costs with its feed all the way from the building the materials to know what the overhead is, to know what it really takes, what could be saved, what couldn't be saved, what can be shaved, not shaved. Absolutely. And I think <clears throat> that's an important part. Um, and I think this is a probably, speaking of education, you know, one of the things that I found is that I went and worked and was an entrepreneur and did the things I did. And then I went back to graduate school, which gave me a different graduate school experience. Uh, yes, I, you can regurgitate a thousand things out of a book, but being able to have experience, go then learn it and gain other experiences, I think is probably a different experience. And Joe and I have this in common that we're both Keenan Flagler graduates uh, from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill with our MBAs. But I think that that's part of what we're talking about also. Like the entrepreneur knows that life is hard. The entrepreneur knows that you always have to learn no matter how old you get. That an entrepreneur has to think about not only his legacy, but how am I gonna divide this amongst my children if by some weird opportunity, all of them want to do this. How are they all gonna, and by some other weird opportunity, maybe other people in the company want their children to pass down and then there's multiple generations. And how do we holistically look at that? But it takes the, the trust of the people, which means you gotta have the street credibility, you know? Yeah. So um, let's talk about next steps with you guys. I mean, how, so you're out of the business, you've lost your facility, um, what do you do now? Yeah, at that point... Because um, it's pivot time, right? Yeah, you, pivot time. Do you stay in fish? Do you not stay in fish? I mean, how do you decide? Yeah. There was so much that we had learned through the, the first experience. Um, and I would say they were primarily technical. Uh, the things that you know we really focused on as far as what we learned and trying to create a better fish farm. Mm -hmm. And um, about that time is actually when I went and got my schooling at... Uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, you know, go yeah. Eels. I know. DeMario, um, if you're in the building, boo to NC State, man. Down <laughs> with the wolf pack. Just so everyone knows, DeMario is like three times my size and a Super Bowl winner. So we're just. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we better lock that door. We better lock the door. <laughs> you know, the. Uh, um, and so, and in, in through that process, you know, I'm, I'm getting some of the you know, the book smarts, the doing the school and, mm -hmm. and going through that, that MBA program, which was outstanding. 
and meanwhile also launching Eagle's Catch with Paul. And uh, and so at that ending, we Paul and I were like, well, we still want to do this. We still want to chase this industry. And so, you know, we'd uh, gotten together with some other folks, and, and we kind of come across uh, a group that had done tilapia farming. They'd been farmers. You know, they were kind of working on the technology and that kind of stuff. At that point, I still wouldn't consider us experts on the production technology. We've developed it since then. But at that point, we're still wanting to work with someone that knew a lot more than we did. Absolutely. And, um, and so this group had worked with tilapia and they kind of had a, a growth program and everything else that they had done on a smaller scale, you know, a handful of different facilities across the United States. And uh, with all everything that we learned through the first process, and we started applying it and looking at what they had done with this, you know, new lens. And we started to really see how what they had been doing really matched up with what our goals and the lessons learned had been on our from our standpoint and so we decided to work together with them and uh, and then so at that point that was kind of the jumping off point for eagles catch just from an educational standpoint just to quick help the audience along here what are the differences between growing a tilapia and growing a barramunda just to talk about to help visualize this transition you guys are talking about because it's a different fish yeah uh, they're they're pretty similar in a lot of ways, uh, the barramundi and the tilapia, with a couple exceptions. Number one, tilapia is actually a much hardier fish. In fact, uh, the tilapia originated from the Nile in Egypt. Uh, it's called a Nilotikus tilapia. And it has been cultured around the world. Um, it's, pr it's predominant in so many diets across the world. And uh, it was chosen because it's a really hardy animal that grows fast. And it frankly, doesn't ha it doesn't have much flavor of its own. So if you're a cook out there, this is a blank canvas for you to work with or to work your magic with. And so however you cook it, and we just, uh, by the way, we just tried a, a bunch of different recipes here. Um, and it uh, there's so many different ways you can take this fish because it's, it's like a blank canvas. Yeah, absolutely. And so all of those things combined where it might command less of a price on the... Uh, retail shelf, but it's more predictable, faster growing, um, and uh, it still has this kind of wide appeal. You know, there's so many things that can come from that too. There is value there. And the requirements, the sort of environmental requirements are less. And so we looked at, one of the metrics that we look at is, what is a cost to build a farm as a function of its annual production? And so you look at some of the big, big aquaculture facilities in the United States or uh, in Europe where a lot of this was pioneered. And, uh, you know, there's a couple companies that for salmon, for example, it's around like a, a 30 in between 30 and 40 dollars per kilogram investment for salmon. Now, salmon is a premium product and Absolutely. they command more of a price point, but they also take three years to grow. And so by comparison, that 30 to $40 in investment, we're at $8 yeah. with our tilapia. And so as you look at that, and our time to revenue is nine months. And so when you look at the full investment equation, it is a, it's uh, returns are somewhat comparable, but tilapia get 43% of the consumption, but less than 1% of the investment capital. And so yeah. for us, 
it was kind of a unique opportunity and under underappreciated in some of the capital markets that are interested in this space. And I think that was between that and the sort of cultural heritage part of Iowa that identifies with agricultural production on a mass industrial scale, doing it in distributed production models across the state and, uh, and with a fish that was extremely hardy that we could have other people grow for us, that was kind of the jumping off points. Like this is a really unique opportunity in a fish that is unique for this opportunity and a place, Iowa, for the same opportunity. So talk to me, Paul, about now how you guys, we've talked about the plant, and so you're obviously now into a new fish facility. So Eagle's Catch has decided to find a piece of land. How do you guys, do you go with the same tanks you used before? Do you decide you're going to build them on your own? I mean, how do you guys decide how yeah. you're going to do this? We Once we uh, had committed to sell our yeah. facility, uh, we went ahead and sent Joe and then our fish manager at the time uh, out across the United States looking for different species of fish, different tank systems, different buildings to to house this new facility. Um, and we came across uh, an outfit in Colorado that had a, a greenhouse facility with a tank system that was different from the one that we were using before, uh, a lot more efficient um, in, in their water usage and, and able to to do larger volumes of fish in in the same in a facility, so we we took on that uh, opportunity and uh, and started to to go out through friends and family uh, and do a fundraise. Um, so we we went through the whole process of of raising money to start building uh, this facility. Um, that we we had the technical. Uh, expertise coming along uh, with the building package that that Absolutely. we'd be able to uh, get knowledge from and then also on the aquaculture side uh, um, technical knowledge there as well that would be able to help manage us through through the startup and into um, into raising tilapia you know a lot of people say you got to kill a million fish before you're a fish farmer well we 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 brought the people in that had already killed the million fish, so we didn't have to. So yeah, that was, absolutely. That was a nice opportunity for us to grow uh, with with less risk uh, involved in a startup. So so that was our first steps of getting into it. Um, you know, going out and doing fundraising in in rural Iowa. Um, you know, like I said, it was a lot of friends and family, but it was a lot of I would say about ninety five percent of our investment pool is related to agriculture um, and I'd say the other five percent are maybe one generation removed uh, from the farm or agriculture so so there's a lot of people that know and understand what livestock agriculture is about and how we want and need to um, go through the roads of, of bumps and, and and bruises but the end game is to is to make a great product that is is very sellable and we've talked about water usage, and I, I want to talk about that. But I also want to talk about what now happens with the waste, because there's fish waste. It's obviously very high in, in its potential to be fertilizer. And um, you guys are working on that, so I don't want to lose track on that. I want you to keep talking, but I just want to make sure that we talk about that as well with you guys, because I think it's an important piece of what we're talking about 
you know, a more holistic glue to the agriculture, including the fish as being part of what actually happens. And there was once a free cow, mm-hmm. you know, so um, go ahead. Yeah. On the on the fish wastewater, uh, the nice opportunity there, it's it's not like a, a hog manure where it's high in NP and K, where you can knife that into the soil and, and grow your corn and soybeans, uh, mainly corn. Um, but what the fish uh, wastewater has is a biostimulant aspect to it. Um, it is something that as you use it on your leafy greens or your tomatoes or any a lot of vegetable type uh, products whatever it has either in the soil or fertilizer that you put on it it enhances that Uh, it makes that plant uh, utilize it better and and that's something that uh, that we need to capture that uh, product to be able to uh, to go out and use it as added value product for our fish farm yeah absolutely and um, I believe the Indians used to put dead fish across their farms and sow it, sow it into their fields just for mm-hmm. that reason to keep the the nutrients and the efficiency in the soil to grow bigger crops. I mean, they just knew it through tribal knowledge. Yeah, yep. And yeah. and that's something that we're wa- working on. Um, we want to make sure that we raise the fish. Tilapia is our, our main objective, but there's so many other opportunities for us to add value to the fish farm you know, wastewater, the, uh, say, composting dead fish, you know, uh, there's a lot of opportunities there that we'll, we're getting into um, and, and seeing the, the value to it. All right, so let's talk about size of the facility because now you're, you've got to build a bigger facility. So let's talk about size, tanks, how many fish, mm-hmm. you know, where do you, where you go from here, you know, what's the, what's the goals? Yeah, so the facility is, is a about 3.8 acre greenhouse wow and so it is housing uh, 142 tanks across the facility so as a nursery and as a grow outside and so the nursery is getting those fish to about 100 grams and then we take them from 100 to 800 which is the market weight or that's about 1.5 to 1.6 pounds and so that is uh that production model in a lot of ways mimics other sort of agricultural production in the state and uh, the this facility which we broke ground uh in in 2017 and we we built that farm out over the last couple years we had our first sale happen in 2019 2020 was just uh, a whirlwind of a year for us as you know this was our big breakout year and we ran smack face first into a pandemic And, uh, and so, you know, we didn't quite meet expe- our own expectations in 2020, uh, but things are, are slowly returning and, and the end capacity of this farm is going to be roughly 5 million pounds of fish uh, per year, oh, that's which awesome. puts it at one of the largest fish farms in North America. Um, I, one of, not the largest, but one of them. And, uh, you know, our expansion from there is, is going to be with, you know, Iowa farmers and, and other people that want to bring home that next generation, continue the heritage. And uh, growing tilapia is is, uh, is a very great process. And one of the things that we didn't talk about was the net water turnover. So one of our company goals is actually to produce the most water neutral and carbon neutral forms of animal protein. 
how we're able to achieve that in, in at least in Iowa, we don't have a shortage of water. We don't irrigate, we tile to get water away from our fields, which is in contrast to so many other places in the yeah, world absolutely. where they're constantly having to irrigate and get water out too. And they even think that, you know, the wars of the future are not gonna be fought over oil, they're gonna be fought over water as one of the most scarce resource. Absolutely. You know, remember we talked about how you know, between now and 2050, we have to almost double food production with less land and less water and less inputs. And so we look at this need to use less water, even though in the state of Iowa, we're not constrained, but it's really kind of a global perspective of, with this being one of our top constrained resources going into the future, we have to lower the water use as a uh, frac, as a, as a input of this production and so and then from carbon standpoint you know there's a lot that we can talk about there too but that's really kind of our sustainability mission and what we're really trying to accomplish again is the most water neutral and carbon neutral form of animal protein one of the one of the real learning experiences we got from buckeye fish to eagles catch was our water filtration system we were using about 10% of our water every day and that was getting flushed out as wastewater to our lagoon system. Where this new system that we're using now, we're anywhere from two to 4% of the water is either sent out as wastewater or uh, evaporated because we, we're in a greenhouse. Yeah. So evaporation going back in the atmosphere. Um, so those things right there, just with scalability, you know, we're, we're saving a lot more water than what we would have on the first initial uh, site. So, you know, there's advancements to be made yet too. You know, true, totally true. And yeah. and so we think, you know, when Joe's saying we want to be the most water neutral protein, well, if you've got, you know, I raise cattle, I raise sheep, pigs, they all drink water. They consume it, you know, and then it goes to to urine as far as waste. Whereas the fish, yeah, we've got a lot of water sitting there, but they're they're swimming in it. They're not utilizing it. Uh, and we can recirculate that water yeah. over and over and over again and, and not have to flush it down the, the, as wastewater. I think one of the things I, I particularly like about it is with fish, um, you're able, one, you're able to grow them. I think there's, like you said, you don't have to use the water to actually consume, the animal doesn't consume it. It, you get a waste product that benefits the farm. I mean, we've talked about utilization and stuff like that. I think holistically, um, you're still using better usage of water, and it's still better cleaning and usage of the wastewater than having the same fish waste just go out into the ocean, if we're going to be honest. I mean, there's enough fish out there and waste, whatever, but if we're going to use it, we should put it back in the soil to start rebuilding the organic soil and putting carbon back in the soil also and things like that that we can do with with it and enhance the grasses even if it's just grazing and, and so on and so forth on the energy input into our animals and so this is where it's like it's not only the things that we eat it's also the things that eat what we eat or right. whatever vice versa and um that we eat what they eat yeah. basically and it's um it's how do we do all that. So I think part of it is, is what you guys are onto and what Iowa's always done very well is adjust to that. And even though they have water and, and could build a million power plants and have enough land to probably 
use whatever and electricity they want they still use wind they're still benefiting the farmers they're trying to make sure the generations go on that that land's protected that it stays what it is because the reality is there's not many places like iowa that can produce the way iowa produces on a world scale global scale so you know it's funny how we think about things um on security and all that and the things that we do, but we eat up our farmland like it's, yeah. you know, like it's this morning cereal. So, yeah. you know, to that point, I think wise guy once told me that the process of, of raising animals is adding value to feedstuffs. And so in Iowa, we're a big epicenter of the feedstuffs. And with fish, we're converting that into a usable protein very efficiently. 1.3 pounds of feed gets you a pound of protein in return. And I think the whole animal ag industry is under pressure from different groups. You know, it's why there's a movement towards, you know, plant-based proteins, synthetic meats, and those kinds of things, and, you know, vegan and vegetarian lifestyles. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different reasons why people uh, go to that sort of lifestyle. I'm not going to discredit that at all one of the criticisms is that animals are inefficient at converting feedstuffs and why can't we just consume field corn well you can't your body can't digest it but you know the from our standpoint we're looking at we're adding value to feedstuffs things that are easy to grow and trying to utilize those nutrients all the way through and so with fish converting that 1.3 pounds of feed into a pound of protein in return there is still some waste, that 30%, that 0.3. But then what will you do with that effluent stream or nutrient stream that is coming out the other side, you can continue to add value exactly. to uh, that original feedstuff. And so people are utilizing that as a fertilizer for other feedstuffs or for, you know, uh, it's been really good for like vegetable growth. Like Paul talked about the biostimulant making better use of the ingredients that are in front of these plants. So even though it is an animal protein process, we're still capturing all of that feedstuff value. And that's really kind of a, a, a great starting point for this sort of carbon neutrality argument. Exactly. That, hey, this is like one of the most environmentally conscious foods that you can do, even though it's an animal protein. Oh, by the way, you know, our fish systems are the most efficient there are. And in Iowa, over 40% of our electricity comes from wind energy. So the carbon footprint of one of our, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, one of our fish is so much less than any other food stuff. And I think that's really, you know, we're still working on proving out those numbers. And uh, we're working with some experts to say, to compare one protein to the next one uh even vegetables to what we're doing and say this is a really great uh in product that is net neutral on the environment and i want to just and i want to pause here because i think on a scale let's talk about what you're talking about and food and the importance of food and different nutrition one of the things that happens is you're growing the stuff that's fed to the fish in the area that you're growing the fish right so it's not moving very far right then the fish are processed relatively central to the united states which we've talked about before which makes them move generally the one 
one way. They're not trucks back and forth. They're not hitting multiple spots. We generally try to move them in one direction from that point based on the model. Um, why the United States just had an Iowa was lucky. Again, why U.S. went so up during war times, we could produce a lot of food on a lot of land and push it out to the ports on either side to support war efforts on both sides of the country. We know that that's the way it, it is, yet we still refuse to see things that way. We think that, oh, let's just plant-based protein and everything. Well, yes, we can grow a lot of plant-based protein, but what happens to all the nutrients that we don't we can't really get i don't care how many vitamins how many whatever it's still going to pass through an animal to get to us right you know so i i can argue a million different ways that you can get it other ways but still nature designed the animal to pass it through it to us being at the the food chain where we are and we could eat a lot of different varieties it's just we've got to accept that they're there and that there was once a free cow and so um, that being said, what are next steps for your business? I mean, you've, you've gotten this far. You now have it. What, where, where do you have to go? I mean, we've started talking about, I mean, it's not only farm animals. We're talking about whole utilization, but now even a 1.6-pound yeah. tilapia. Um, so let's talk about some of that stuff, utilizing animals, what, and then what are next steps for your business? Yeah. So for us, for us to grow, we know there's, there's three costs that you have to lower to reach price parity with imported product. So to your point on transportation, most of the seafood in the United States, in fact, three quarters of it coming from China, that product is being shipped literally from the other side of the world. So you look at distance, tra- uh, miles traveled, that's a huge cost. Yeah. And so you've got three costs to reach price parity. Now our cost of production is higher today, but we're going to continue to lower that through vertical integration and utilizing what's in front of us. So it's feed, labor, and transportation. Being close to the consumer in the center of the United States, being close to the feedstuffs, and being close to the uh, you know the people that are producing everything that goes into that supply chain yeah. that lowers your your transportation cost immediately number two labor so with us developing these farms kind of with an iot mindset so internet of things integrating these farms with a software platform that lowers the the labor requirement is one of our big big time goals but also the actual physicality that goes into these farms it's not as physically demanding of a job as other forms of agriculture. And so it actually opens up a whole different labor base that isn't even recognized in under current workforce, uh, as a current workforce. So in the, in the state of Iowa, you know, we're very traditional communities. So we're talking about homemakers. We're talking about, you know, stay at home moms or dads. We're talking about that are involved in agriculture. We're talking about uh, people that maybe are that uh, aren't within that workforce. Now we can put them to work and make a big economic benefit for their community. The last uh, big uh, cost for us to lower is our feed cost. You know, we're shipping from Louisiana, and we've been pretty clear with the folks that you know supply us with feed. It's like, look, we're paying nine hundred dollars a ton for feed. And we, we want to get that down to, to probably around $700 a ton. 
and we can do that just by nature where we are because our neighbors are raising the corn and soy and the byproducts from chicken and hog production we're adding now a new market for your product and we're going to feed it to our fish and you know we're going to get closer to that consumer and uh, so we're able to mitigate so much transportation yeah. the carbon footprint that comes with the transportation the cost that comes with that as well and uh, so there's a lot of advantages there so over the last you know 8 years that we've been in the business you know we've learned so much uh, about production technology marketing you know everything that goes into raising fish and doing it efficiently and we want to put that to work and we want to get uh, you know that sort of heritage mindset like Paul said he's looking for these opportunities to bring his next generation home to the family farm and there's so many people in the state of Iowa that want to do that too and so we're actually doing design development on smaller farms that family farmers can invest in provide new economic opportunities in, in rural communities bring home that next generation because Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to bring home the next generation because there's not enough land to feed more mouths. Yeah. There's not enough income to feed another family that's coming in to the family farm. So if we can provide these sort of opportunities to them and we would supply them with everything that we had learned uh, from the production technology, here's the tanks to use, here's the building, we'll come and build it. You All you have to do is fund and operate it and by the way, we're going to buy the product on the back end. You're not going to have to worry about your own marketing plan and everything else. And we find that family farmers are incredibly encouraged and, and interested in this because it resembles so much the, uh, the pork and chicken models yeah. from a business standpoint. It's like invest and produce. And it fits in culturally with what we do in rural America as well. And you don't have to worry about it. We handle the brand, the marketing, and we exactly. handle the market out the door. And you guys grow for us. And we, yep. and it, it's, I mean, a lot of people do it. It's a franchise model. And, and a franchisee, they're investing the money. They're building the facility. The brand's getting built. These are these are the right type of models for things to, to make change. So I, I like what you guys are doing. And I think the whole point is to not only benefit yourself as a business but if you're rooting for other people it helps grow your business i think Absolutely. success comes to you more easily mm -hmm. i think you gain more people who support you and i think you attract better partners or business partners whether it's vendors or sources by doing those type of things so i mean this is this is pretty phenomenal right so now you've got this concept so i mean We've talked about tilapia. Um, we've talked about you guys are starting to value add to it. We've talked about, I mean, what there's process for the skitch skins. I mean, dog treats. I mean, let, let's really dive into sort of how do you utilize a tilapia? So the big thing about a tilapia is it's a not a, a real high yielding fish. Uh, we'll see about 30% of the, the fish is fillet uh, that's consumable uh, on your on your protein side. So you got 70% of that fish that is what they call offal. I mean, every other piece of the fish, but you can utilize that. Uh, if we would manufacture or put up a processing plant, we can capture all that other product, that 70%, and use it in a lot of different ways. We could use it in fertilizer, we could use it in pet foods, in healthcare. I know they've used tilapia skins for burn victims. Yeah. 
Um, you can use it in cosmetics. Uh, they've used the scales for glitter, uh, collagen, a lot of other things that can be utilized. So we can capture that value of that fish and, and use that as an added value product. Um, so there's opportunities there that we'd be able to, um, you know, right now we're having some, some fish custom processed for us. So we have to pay for them to do it. And then we do not receive any of the added value product. They receive that themselves. Yeah. Um, so it's it's something that we're needing to do going forward to to make that vertical integration possible. Yeah. yeah. To um, that point, there's a lot of value added products yeah. that we can get out of that. You know, Paul talked about some of the baseline ones, but there's things that you can do like with the fish skins. I think it was briefly mentioned that you can make dog treats out of the fish skins. Yeah. We've talked about you know fish rinds, much like pork rinds, but yeah. with made from the fish skins. Uh, Paul talked about the the burn victims that use tilapia skins as a as a bandage. You know, boiling the rest of the fish, and you can make fish stock. There's so many other pro uh, products that you'd be able to use and turn that last, you know, sixty six percent to seventy percent of that fish, and uh, into usable products. One of the things we did uh, earlier today is. You know, with uh, some other parts of the fish, we made fish burgers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the filet is not the only part of that fish that's usable. And uh, in a lot of cases, another, you know, uh, animal ag protein, what you do with the co-products or the byproducts makes the difference whether you're making money or yeah, not. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's a lot of margin that is uh, potential for that. And, you know, we want to we want to be a part of that development of those those uh, co-products that's really going to make this uh, take this to the next level. And so I I mean I love this because we're talking about the animals we're talking about it's not just being a fish farmer it's how does it fit into your family farm as part of to balance out things which again if you look in all directions when nature takes you where we're supposed to find the balance it's exactly that i mean financially we have to balance it yep. farming for the land we have to balance it um we need to and for carbon and for the environment we need to balance it so it's like you're farming it's it's these are the steps families come back to the farms the farms become multiple businesses really business units just because they're in multiple things you see it where people are getting more into the ones that are surviving are finding niches and things like that. And tilapia is one of them in this case, or fish farming in general, added on to your traditional agriculture. It's not one or the other. That's why I like what you guys are doing in your model. And I think your experience and your street credibility and street wisdom adds to that so much where people coming into the fish farming or aquaculture, they don't have that knowledge of like there is a traditional farming model. Yes, it is constantly being tweaked and grown and bettered through technology or, or different things, but there's also the ability to add more. It's not, it just has to be a land animal. It's not, it just has to be a row crop. Right. Um, or whatever, or just anything, you name it. We're starting to see that there's creativity there. So um, I appreciate you guys coming in uh, a lot. And so as we wrap up i mean what do you guys i mean if you could each pick like three or four things that you thought were the most valuable piece for you guys in your personal journey i mean really what would it be um in terms of growth or something that you could pass on your kids or anyone that was being an entrepreneur that you know they still need to go through but if you wish you could have someone learn something 
it, and save it, what would it be? I, save the time. I guess the one of the biggest things is is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to fail. You know, don't be afraid. You know, I've talked to many people that oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have tried that. And it's like, you don't know. You know, it goes back to my football. If I was a walk on, and and if I wouldn't, I had other high school teammates that could have played. Yeah. You know, but they didn't take that chance. And and I don't want my kids to look back. 20 years from now and go, ah, I wish I would have tried this, or I wish I would have invested in this, or, yeah. you know, taking the chance is, is I think, is a huge deal for me, yeah. and, and, and I want my kids to, to be confident enough to be able to, you know, research, be able to have, make a good decision, but once you research and think, yes, this is a good opportunity, yeah, go for it. You know, make that opportunity happen, and and if if you fail, well, pick yourself back up and and look for the next thing. Um, so I think that's one of those things that, you know, I'm afraid that this next generation that's in high school and college, you know, not all of them, but some of them have that. And some of the people that I grew up with had that opportunity, but they didn't, yeah, they didn't jump at it. And I think that's one for me that that I I hope I pass on to my kids. What I would say probably is along a similar strain as what Paul said, and I think I've mentioned it once before in, in this podcast, just go out and do something and, you know, and, and make a transaction. I don't care if it's, you know, selling lemonade or if it's, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, get out and do it. And through that process, just go into it the mindset of just learn, 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 apply, apply, apply. And, you know, that was the recipes for success in his football career was just go out and do it, learn, 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 apply, apply, apply. And that's why he was so successful in, in that endeavor and, and why, you know, we think we're going to continue to be successful in the, in the fish space. And, uh, and so, you know, if there's a college student or high school student that's out there that is out there listening, it's really, or anybody on, in, at any age, just go out and do it. And uh, and start to develop, you know, the sort of competencies that uh, that come with it. Yeah, because I think a lot of it comes from confidence, but from experience. Yeah. And I think if I were to really take it full circle, a scarred or wounded, you know, battle ground tested entrepreneur can sense when someone else is making the mistakes that weren't battle tested. Now we don't know everything, but I also know what you guys said is know what you don't know which I think is more important, like also than um, sometimes entrepreneurs, they don't realize what they don't know. And so they try to do it all themselves and they don't realize, hey, I don't know this. I need to find a partner or an expert or go myself and get the expertise. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that unless you make the jump, you never realize really what you don't know. It, they're all ideas and there's a million napkin entrepreneurs in the world, if that's what you want to call it, and give it an entrepreneur title, yeah. even though by definition it's not one. It's just, if you're really going to be one, you're really going to do it, it's going to hurt. Yeah. And it's going to hurt bad sometimes. Well, and and I've, I've had a family member that he's got a million of these napkin ideas, and I think half of them would have been unbelievable. Yeah. But he just never, never took that yeah. second step, yeah. and and it's it's too bad because it's it's something that is, you know, sh shoulda, coulda, woulda, you know? yeah. And I, I and it that hurts. You know, and to Joe's to, point, just turn over the rock. 
I don't know. I mean, otherwise the rock's just going to follow you everywhere. Yep. There's there's kind of two sayings that that I kind of try to live by. It's, you know, number one, test small, fail small, win big. Yeah. You know, and in that case, it's just go out and do something and and uh, and and work through those processes and 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 learn. And uh, and there's so many things that you can apply if you just go out and do. So sorry, I I had no. one other. I I forget what that was, and maybe I'll remember. No, but I'm gonna these. sort of tie on that. I mean, the thing is, is even in in the business that I'm in, we have clients come in, like. It's hard to bet and get into something with someone who doesn't have any experience because you could be the luckiest person ever, uh, theoretically, um, but opportunity meets experience, which meets preparedness, in my opinion. And so I, I just, I really, I'm, I'm a firm believer in this. You have to go get the experience, even if it's working for someone else to start the credibility or interviewing other people um you know books and stuff aren't enough coaching yep. mentoring yep. like and we and we think everything now happens behind a screen or we can do it over a screen and we don't need face-to-face -face interaction yep. uh it's i different. i just don't even know how you do yep. anything like you know i don't think my you know i was told to go on the road here and there at the beginning of my career but now i it's not even an option like mm -hmm. deborah and i don't even think about it as humans i don't think most people in food service partners anymore think about it at the level you guys obviously yeah. don't think about it you're here yeah. this is what we need to do and because you get over that first fear you almost don't have your fears in life become less and it's almost you know okay like you're afraid you're stuck there i don't know why i can't i remember being there but i'm not quite sure why but you can't get stuck there because like you need momentum yeah. and momentum is falling and bouncing and learning to pick yourself back up yeah. like on a horse farm you know you get thrown off it's best for the horse and best for you to get back on unless you're dying yeah. or the horse is dying but get back on it's best for everyone like respect wise for each other respect for yourself self-confidence the horses needing to know that you're okay that it can be trusted that pe things get messed up that it's okay like there's all these things that we learn you know and my tribal knowledge could be different than someone else's tribal knowledge but if you know i know what i don't know i can now gain more experience from people also so that did uh so i did remind myself the the uh, quote but you know one of the things i was going to say was you're never going to know everything. Yeah. Um, and until you do, you know, so it's to Paul's point, you know, just jump in, do it. And you won't know everything until you get into it. Um, and so w the quote that I was going to, I was going to relay was asking the right questions is much harder than finding the right answers. Yeah. And, uh, and so trying to find what those questions are, and I have to force myself into so many situations of trying to ask more questions, ask questions that I don't even know are the correct ones to ask. Yeah. And but going through that again is finding the right questions is harder than finding the right answers. Yeah. And I agree with that one hundred percent. And uh because again, like if you don't ever do it, you don't know what could be missing or wrong, how you're ever gonna and you're not gonna run a successful business. Um you know, just just like the opposite if you try to control one part of your business too much you lose track of the other parts and yep, go in the right. ground so it's where do you find the balance but i think 
what you guys have done is is found a balance between you know how do we grow what's financially responsible um how do we get a proof of concept and then build upon it to your point small small let's we've got a proof of concept we know we can do this let's keep expanding now to the next levels and start vertically integrating while also horizontally integrating um which is what if any entrepreneur really knows the only way to gain value is to spread it out of the margin and that's mm -hmm. the food stuffs that we're talking about you need to be more part of it and um mm -hmm. that's where you know keeping things close and stuff matter um Absolutely. lastly i have something i really want to want to ask you guys um and and start to talk about which is is tilapia the end i mean is 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 the diversity of the fish now part of the plan for Eagles Catch. Mm -hmm. I mean, once you build a tilapia system, what comes next? Yeah. So there's, uh, with different species, there's a lot of different complexities that go along with each one. You know, comparing a shrimp to a tilapia to a salmon, it's like comparing chickens to hogs to, yeah, absolutely. you know, a giraffe. Uh, so. Uh, there's a lot of different biological requirements that go along with each. And so tilapia is one of the few fish, well, probably the only fish that has been farmed successfully in these types of systems for multiple decades. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's something that we said, all right, let's start with a fish that we know works, that we know that we can grow and we can sell and have a positive start to our business eventually there's going to come a time where you know you're the number one seafood product in america is shrimp and so it's kind of the big you know elephant in the room yeah. and the big opportunity but they're much more difficult to grow and especially at scale and so you know we're spending our time cutting our teeth and, and growing an industry built around tilapia which is a, a in its own right a, an incredible opportunity and we keep a very close eye at the sort of technologies and production that goes into raising shrimp as well as salmon as well as a handful of other species that could be big opportunities in the United States and so we keep a close eye um, but we feel really good about our opportunities with tilapia for at least the next five years um, but uh, we're always going to keep an open eye to the production opportunities on their species as and well. I think that's it right first you gotta get good at what you're good at and then um and get that working right and then it's time to make the next yep. entrepreneurial leap and then you know maybe after that one maybe it's you go from one species and getting that right to oh we'll launch two yeah. but it it has to to your point you got to start off and build the bridge and then cross it i think often people would try to jump into multiple things at once mm -hmm. or try to bite off more than they can chew um mm -hmm. And I think that causes problems, honestly. And I think we're seeing a lot of aquaponics go into tilapia and other types of fish mm -hmm. too, as part of their aquaculture process or for the yeah. aquaponics. Um, so it's interesting to see how all that's coming yeah. along and men may work for you guys as well and, right. and nationwide relationships and stuff like that. So I think it's pretty Absolutely. cool where you guys are. And I think the vision of what we need to do with fish in terms of bringing it on shores to complement the existing agriculture makes sense. It's part of our system. Mm -hmm. It's not something that needs to be, we don't run out with bow and arrows and shoot our cows anymore, like really. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, I, this is not to say fishing doesn't matter because we still got to catch a lot of species that we can't grow. 
but what it is saying is that hey you know we what are the things that we can grow on shores over time and really take a real view at it and then what are the things that still need to be out there and you know as humans hopefully when we're gone probably by the time it happens we start to realize what that balance really looks like i I would love to see my kids be able to raise tuna yeah i mean wouldn't that be cool to be in central iowa and have a have a tuna farm i know you know i think that would be awesome Uh so there's opportunities And, and i agree i think what we're seeing in the technologies and the water and being able to conserve it and wiping out water for out for um outdoor agriculture in places that don't have water just it's getting a little you know we we've got to be smarter about the way we do it and where we move where and how we complement things or once we get water to that place how do we keep it there right versus just flushing it it away yeah that's right and so i think these are all part of those solutions if we really look at it as humans it needs to fit into nature's natural pattern in, yes, we're the highest intelligence on the planet, but it's not to use it to disrupt the system that's already been made. Like right. we're like, okay, like we don't understand the intricacies of nature total, but what we can do is harness them as humans to make them work in a way that's beneficial to both humans so we can survive and they can survive and the planet can survive. Yeah. And that's the answer. And pieces like you guys are doing and why i want really do two episodes with you guys is it fits into what we're talking about like naturally we know that we need diversity in our diets on proteins on fruits and vegetables on you know minerals on seeds on you name it nuts it's in order and it doesn't need to be constantly every day but over you know cyclically that's okay to do and tilapia is part of that solution and, and so is plant-based protein. It's just not the solution. It's just how do we balance it all to work together on the farm so that's the stuff coming out yeah. that while we're buying it, it's all benefiting, like Absolutely. you guys said. You know, and to that final point, and, and not to back, backtrack in our conversation, but it's also necessary. Raising fish on land is actually necessary for the health of our oceans as well. Yeah. And you know, 93% of the wild stocks are either overfished or maximally sustainably yeah. fished. We're not getting any more fish from the ocean. In fact, it's gonna start declining. And uh, so bringing fish on land is a very necessary part. The sort of uh, practices that are used in, in ocean caught fish are not healthy for, for our oceans. And so, like you mentioned, there's so much from a holistic standpoint of our diets and of agricultural production systems, you know, this is a scientific process that we're trying everything from lowering stress on the animals uh, to that uh, create a better product on the back end to creating a diet for consumers that gets all the vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and nutrients that they need uh, in a variety of ways that, uh, you know, allows our bodies to best thrive under the next 30 years again that we're going to have to produce twice the amount of agricultural product with less land less water and less inputs and so the sort of agricultural challenge that is ahead of us is immense and it's going to take the best and brightest minds to figure out how the heck we are going to feed all these people 
that are coming even just in the next 30 to 50 years. Yeah, and I think and 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 the reality is is if we really take a step back as humans and understand our food sources and our supply chains and the way things move and that one they need to move less. So fishing boats, burning fish f- fuel just okay. So not that I'm against fishing, but I what I'm trying to say here is we th- there has to be a different way of doing it and maybe there's fish farms out in the ocean stuff like that that eventually run efficiently without the harm and stuff that's going on i don't know but i don't i don't see it yet i see it as we got to move to land first and perfect it and and get what we can on land to start releasing some of that pressure um also bringing in those alternative food sources into our diets for food security not only as the United States, but seriously as a global environment. Um, and for the future, if we really care about humans and we really care about passing things on, like this is something we got to think about. And when we're looking at it, it's tweaking a lot of knobs across a lot of things and not everyone wins. But how do you do what's best for the environment? How do you do what's best for the humans? How do you do what's best for the animals? and the food and the families and keep people and and weigh all the economics all the water all the byproduct the pollution the planet really it's it's nature has a way it's just it's harnessing it on the farms like we've talked about and being open to hey maybe i'm not just a cow farmer and maybe i'm not just a sheep farmer maybe i have to be an entrepreneur or what really a farmer is, which is I need to diversify myself as much as possible for myself, for the market, for the environment, and for the consumers. And it's now getting the consumers to realize it, but what you guys have provided is a spark in order to do that and a way for people to do it on land that makes economic sense. And so how do you argue with it? You know, how do you... You know, what do you, how do you attract more people? You build something better that makes more sense that's hard to argue with. Yeah. And if you look at holistically what you guys have done, all the tweaking is part of a larger picture that makes sense. Yes, this is major what you're doing in and of itself just with the tilapia, but as it filters into the whole thing, it's a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Because it's not the ripple of one thing, it's the whole food chain and how we're rippling it right now. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that we, I, the amount of cauliflower and broccoli and stuff that we get from China now as a country also, it's not only Mexico and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, we've literally, the more farmland we consume and the more less we diversify and the more um, we don't focus on keeping the family farms around and doing some of that stuff we're talking about more than bouncing up and down in those commodities just because it makes economic sense, but also farming sense, also environmental sense. Yeah you know um and like you said in honesty i think fish wastewater complemented with already the animal fertilizer products that are going in there from land animals it's a way to rebuild soil quickly and it's a way to take things like grass-fed or grass-finished animals in these type of trends to maybe get more energy in them to grow them like we're doing Mm -hmm. with other energy sources i don't know but theoretically, in my mind, what I know about energy and getting it into animals, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
And, you the, know. and the less we can be more depend, less dependent on other countries, the better yeah. off we're going to be in the future. Yeah. yeah, I think that's across the the whole spectrum in every country. Yeah, you know, and that's why you have China that has, uh, you know, protectionist policies around their agricultural production. I think that's smart on not only their their practice but on our practices because food security is national security. Yeah. And if there's a breakdown in trade, it really puts all of the countries at risk and uh, of food security risk. And so, you know, being a part of that conversation, I think has been really outstanding experience, both for, for Paul and I, and, and with you here now too. Yeah, and I'll just have a little fun and we'll go really far out. <laughs> you know, 500,000, 500, years down the road, whatever it is, you know, and we're at some crisis globally the only way to replicate what we have is to be able to take a whole farm and mm -hmm. to be able to contain whatever it is that we have in an environment that's containable. Yeah. In my opinion, I can't think about how else we would do it. Maybe someone else down the road will have a brighter mind, but in us, where we go, we need to bring our food. Mm -hmm. And in order to do it in any efficient manner, we have to be able to grow as much in that circle as possible and have as many people doing the same circle even if it supports the urban people that don't farm it's multiple farms doing it in wherever it ends up being because without it we can't survive so i'm just a little bit like if i were to really think far out you know i can't see how we don't sustain life that way if we had to yep. you know so weirdly deeply crazily <laughs> to really get the sci-fi guys out there. But I don't think it's far-fetched. I mean, no. it's all moving carbon around and, and yeah. stuff like that. And um, It takes a lot of, I'd say, sort of local expertise in yeah. certain commodities or certain yeah. products. You know, in the standpoint of Iowa, like we're the top, you know, pork-producing state, we're the top corn-producing state. And it's yeah. because, as well as a handful of other commodities, but having that sort of local expertise we're able to increase yields. We're able to do things that create more product um, because we were hyper focused on it. And so, you know, whereas the West Coast and East Coast probably has more exposure, like in vegetable production and those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the state of Iowa, those those things, uh, those kinds of products actually make sense to be closer to that consumer. You know, commoditized corn, soybeans, pork. You know those kinds of things are transform their uh, the way that they are presented yeah, multiple times before they reach an end consumer and so being in a state with only three million people you know <laughs> one fourth the size of just New York City uh, is an entire state you know it um, you know our demand is not there and, and but it's uh, in these all it has to exchange product forms so many times and so you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to do a, a similar thing in fish farming and uh, and still reach those consumers and doing it in a place where it really limits the transportation and really limits the carbon footprint because of this sort of local expertise uh, in these different product forms. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. Can give us again where, you, where we can find you guys on Facebook. Um, actually, one more thing. 
Paul, your name. Oh my God, are you like a Viking or something? I I I was gonna say last names like I do during podcasts, but there's like Stuttgart, and I'm like, oh man, this guy's a Viking. <laughs> yeah, He's a Viking from, from Norway. <laughs> stay from Norway, yeah. Just like, oh man, I thought Bizarro was gonna be hard. I was like, well, but I just I thought your name was awesome, and I'm like, it must be like a Viking or something in the middle of Iowa. So the crazy thing, the V sounds like a W, so it's just scar tweet, tweet like a bird's scar tweet. Yep. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but the it, V throws everybody off. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm, not how it looks like when you spell it, though. No. You know, no. I know. It's a crazy <laughs> thing. Well, thank you guys again. And uh, where can we find you guys on Instagram and Facebook and stuff? Yeah, you can find both uh, Paul Scartweet and myself, Joe Sweeney, uh, and Eagles Catch on Facebook, at uh, in, in that's at uh, eagles-catch. And then you can also find our website at www.eagles-catch.com. Okay, thank you guys uh, so much. I I really enjoyed it actually, and I look forward to maybe doing episode three in a few months and see how things are going. So, great. Look forward thanks to it. guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.